I'll turn with me, if you will, to uh, the first chapter of Ephesians, where this morning the portion we'll be looking at is uh, essentially verses 11 through 14. But because it's contained in the most beautiful sentence in all of Scripture, I'm going to begin reading at verse 3. As you know, the Greek text is just one sentence between uh, verse 3 and the end of verse 14. So that means that uh, uh, the translators have had to sort of make some uh, careful decisions about where to put periods and commas and uh, what to emphasize, what goes with what. Uh, we're not going to argue with them this morning and because the uh, totality of what uh, Paul writes here is just so absolutely stunning that... Um, I don't care where you put the periods. You can't muck it up. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, what can one say beyond what you have written here that would lift our hearts higher than these words lift them? Or give us greater strength or encouragement than knowing the truth of what these words speak. But we thank you that you have required of us that we might come and and hear the word explained. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would do that just now. That we might we might be recipients of his great teaching ministry. And that hearing the truth of these words more firmly embedded in our souls, might find our hearts soaring ever closer to Christ for that very reason. We love him, but we want to love him more. And we ask that this morning that he'd be working in us to that very end for the praise of Christ's name. Amen.
In March of 1984, a man by the name of Robert Cunningham was having uh, dinner at his favorite restaurant, uh, Sal's Pizzeria. And um, he'd been a regular customer of Sal's for about uh, seven years or so. And, uh, and the woman that waited on him had been working there much longer. She'd been there about 19 years. Her name was Phyllis Penza. And, uh, you know, they, you know, as regulars can be, you can banter back and forth a little bit, get to know each other. And um, uh, at the end of his meal, and she brought him the bill and he, and he paid, he, he uh, engaged her and he said, you know, let me give you a choice. He says, I'll either give you a tip now, he says, or um, I'll split the winnings of my, uh, uh, my New York lottery if, if I win. And uh, she thought for a second and she uh, said, she said, I'll forego the tip, and if you win the lottery, I'll take half of it. So he said, okay. And uh, he whips out a ticket. He says, let's choose the numbers. So they chose the numbers, and off he went. And, uh, and that Saturday night, he won $6 million. And, uh, you know, the question that rises in most people's minds is, uh, well, was he going to give back uh, $3 million to, uh, to Phyllis Penza as a tip, you know, for that meal at Sal's? And um, in fact, he did. He did just that. He was, he was a man of his word. And some of us are probably surprised because it's such human nature, isn't it? To break promises. Okay, governments make and break promises. Advertisers, politicians make and break promises all the time. Employers, employees, pastors, parishioners. Husbands, wives, children, parents, employers, employees. People everywhere, in every walk of life, make and break promises. Some of them are made with the best of intentions. Some are made to exploit and manipulate. But for whatever reason they're made, the simple fact of the matter stands that for whatever reason, they often don't materialize. People don't keep their words. We can be eternally thankful that God is not like that. God is a promise keeper. Every promise he makes, he keeps. And the promises that Paul mentions here that our Heavenly Father makes to his children are not only wonderful and exalting, but my goodness, they're absolute and certain. They cannot possibly fail. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, he who promised is faithful. And like Abraham, every believer ought to be assured that what God has promised, he is both certain and able and willing to perform. Ours is a God who will not and cannot lie. At the completion of this longest sentence found in Scripture which Paul pours out his heart and praise to God for all these magnificent things that he's done. The last thing he comes to is the fact that God is granting us, guaranteeing us, promising us an inheritance. We've just seen that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We've been predestined to adoption as sons. We've been given redemption through his blood. We've understood the mystery of his will. And Paul says now that we've also obtained an inheritance. Now inheritance immediately strikes up the fact that it's usually something future. 
And in many respects, that's primarily true. But one important aspect of things that we look forward to in the future, of course, is that they give us hope. There's a certain sense in which we know, okay, if that thing is solid and it's good and it's in the future, then no matter what my circumstances are now, I know that that good thing will ultimately be mine. And so this inheritance that Paul ends with is sort of the consummation point. The thing that he holds up and says, you've already got a foretaste of all these other things that God has given to you, but now I want you to understand that there is laid up for you in heaven an inheritance that cannot fade, perish, rust, or crumble. And he does that because he knows that living in a fallen world is sometimes hard and often disappointing. But here he gives us a timely word that our lovingly, loving Heavenly Father has prepared for us something to give us a strong encouragement, a strong hope in the midst of these difficult days that what is coming to us will satisfy our souls more than anything we have ever known. Paul approaches this topic, as he often does, in an incredibly logical form. First, he gives us the ground, the foundation of of this inheritance. And then he talks about the fact that it is, in fact, guaranteed to us. And then he tells us what the goal of that inheritance ultimately is. Paul begins with the fact that the ground of our inheritance, the, the foundation upon which it is laid, is the fact that we as Christians are in Christ. Verse 11 says, In him, meaning in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, time and again, we visit these words in him. And it's right that we should do so, because that little concept, in him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, that Paul uses so very often, actually about 169 times in his epistles, is used nine times in just these few verses. And that's an extraordinary number. I mean verses 3 through 14, of course. But that's a lot. And it behooves us, I think, to, to be reminded, to always approach it from another angle and be to have that concept built up in our souls a little more deeply because it is so important in the New Testament. So what does it signify? Well, I'm going to just mention two things this morning. The first is that being in Christ indicates a radical transformation. And that's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, the thing that's fascinating is if you, if you look at it in the Greek, and I don't expect most of you did this week, but if you had, you'd have noticed that there's no, no verbs there. Okay, they're, they're, they're just implied. Greeks often did that. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that what that means is that it reads this way. Therefore, if in Christ, new creation. In other words, it's like, bang, bang. This, that. There's no kind of process. There's an immediate, radical transformation of the individual soul. And the Greek perfect tense in which it's written means that this transformation 
will continue on forever. So those who the scriptures tell us in Ephesians 2.1 are dead in trespasses and sins become, as Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, alive in Christ. And that is this transformation that's, that's really taking place. Those who are spiritually dead, unable, unwilling, incapable of responding to God, are now given that capacity, miraculously, by God's coming to them by his Holy Spirit. Now, the term in Christ is, is beautiful, and, and that's why Paul uses it, because it's, the term Christian is really ambiguous. Have you ever thought about how many people claim to be Christian, but in fact are not Christian? Because you can be Christian by simply having grown up in a Christian household. You can claim to be Christian because you go to a particular church. You can claim to be Christian because you've been smitten by the Holy Spirit. But when you talk about being in Christ, you talk about a relationship, something radically different. And that's why Paul uses it, because he says, for me to live is what? For me to live is to be a Christian. No. For me to live is Christ. At the very core of what Paul understood of this radical transformation that the Holy Spirit conducts is a relationship with a Savior who lives and who has made us alive to live in relationship, in intimacy, in fellowship with Him. That's quite wonderful because the second thing falls very normally to that. Because our second thing is that being in Christ brings deep satisfaction and a sense of joy, completeness, wholeness, Shalom, well-being. Because the simple fact is, it's not possible for us to be truly, truly satisfied outside of Christ. John Stott once uh, shared uh, an old Chinese proverb with a group that he was speaking to in Chicago. And uh, it went this way. You want to be happy for an hour? Get drunk. Want to be happy for three days? Get married. You want to be happy for eight days, kill your pig and eat it. You want to be happy forever, be a gardener. Well, there's something a little less than a surefire formula for fulfillment, I think. And we all understand that. Of course, Stott understood that as well. But it reflects the fact that no matter what pleasure, no matter what offer of satisfaction this world presents to us, it's just, like a, it's just like a Chinese dinner. No matter how satisfying it is, it's gone in two hours. And you're hungry again. Isn't that true? Yes. It's our experience, both with Chinese meals as well as, you know, the things of this world. It is in Christ and in Christ only that we are, are satisfied. And the simple fact of the matter is it's because we've been made for that. We have been made for him. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. There is an emptiness that only he can fulfill. There is a longing to know by the creature, the creator who made him. And to be in right relationship with him. Jesus said, I am the bread of life and he who comes to me will not hunger. 
and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And he meant it. I love what John Piper does, actually, in the very first chapter of the book you're going to read, those of you who go, uh, and that is that he rewrites uh, the first uh, question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And that first question is, what is the chief end of man? And Piper responds, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And that's exactly it. You see, if we're to sum up what this this being in Christ is, at least in part, it means that we've been drawn into this, this, this intimate relationship in which our highest joy is found. And apart from that, it is impossible. No matter what we try and fill it with, it remains impossible. Well, Paul moves on now to show us what the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ is. The ground, the very basis and the foundation upon which it is built is the fact that we are in Christ, in relationship, seeking for our highest joy in him. But now he says that is guaranteed. He says you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance. People have always wanted assurances, right? We do, because we know that one another are not trustworthy. Okay, so you go to the bank and you want to take out a loan, what do they want? Collateral, right? They want some collateral. So everywhere we go, there are sworn affidavits, there are oaths, there are guarantees, there are warranties. There are all kinds of means of trying to assure that what we have promised, or others have promised to us, is actually going to take place. Now here, God has said, I'm going to give you an inheritance. And taking God simply at his word ought to be good enough. But you know what? God knows our weakness. And here he does a most wonderful thing in his graciousness. He makes his promise even more certain, if that's possible, by giving us these guarantees. He guarantees his promise by saying he will give us a seal and a pledge. You may recall that in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, in verses 13 to 18, God does the same thing when he's talking to Abraham. And uh, he confirms his promise of of blessing and uh, then confirms it with an oath to provide what the Holy Spirit calls strong encouragement. He didn't have to confirm it with an oath. God can't lie. If he speaks, it's done. If he says it's true, it's true. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Nevertheless, he swears, I will do this thing. Because he knows our weakness. Well, that's what he's doing here. Now, the place to begin, really, is with to remind ourselves of the fact that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God when we first become Christians. Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives, and and that, frankly, is what sets us apart from every other person on the face of the earth. And the only thing that sets us apart from the people around us. But when the Holy Spirit takes residence, he does many things. He teaches us. He functions through us by by the gifts. He edifies us. He protects us. He encourages us. But he also, Paul says here 
guarantees our inheritance in Christ Jesus. In fact, part of the text that we read this morning out of Romans 8 confirms this. Since the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs. Heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, the Spirit of God guarantees our inheritance by sealing us and by giving himself as a pledge. Well, what do those things mean? Well, first, the sealing that Paul is talking about is, is most commonly in those days, and has in fact been used for thousands of years, uh, a well-known practice of, of, uh, of a noble or king or a prince or somebody like that of note uh, who wants to seal a document, uh, make it official, or seal some other thing, for instance, uh, would take uh, normally wax and melt it, and then take their signet ring that had a particular impression of it, their, uh, their sign or their initials or whatever it happened to be, and they plant it on that thing so that it was official. This demonstrates it is mine, or I acknowledge it, or it comes from me, or whatever it happened to be. And, uh, and that was common practice. And that's the idea behind what Paul is saying here when he says that we were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. In other words, when the Spirit comes to us, he seals us. He, he makes something official. Well, it really has at least three meanings, uh, and they're all quite closely related. But let me see if I can just give you a sense of what those are. First, it's meant to communicate a sense of security. Uh, in ancient times, the seal of a king uh, or prince or noble represented security and inviolability. For instance, King Darius, right? He throws Daniel in the lion's den. And then he has a stone rolled over the front of the den or placed on top of the den, as the case may have been. And he had wax poured there and a seal put on it. Because he did not want Daniel's situation to change. You're in the den, you're staying in the den. Anybody who moves the stone, dead man. Okay? Scribes and Pharisees asked for the same thing to be placed on the tomb of Jesus. They didn't want the stone rolled away. They want him secure in there. No changes. Well, in an infinitely greater way, The Holy Spirit secures each and every believer, marking him or her with God's own inviolable seal. This will not change. Christ has come to you in his spirit. He will not leave you nor forsake you, and you are his forever. And you are to live in that security. Moreover, there's an authenticity that takes place. You remember when Jezebel... Right? She was going to get Naboth's uh, vineyard for her husband Ahab, who was that little wimp who went home uh, crying because Naboth wouldn't sell it to him, and he just couldn't get over it. And uh, she decided she was going to take care of business herself in her own inimitable way. And uh, so she sends letters to the noblemen who live in the area around uh, Naboth. And she basically says, uh, drum up some false witnesses so that uh, we can take care of this guy. And she takes Ahab's seal and she seals all those letters with that seal so that when it went out, even though it was, they were basically told to find liars and perjurers to commit a crime against Naboth, the name of the king, nevertheless, that was still an official document because it had his seal on it. And there was nothing else that they could do. 
It was authentic. Well, when God gives us his Holy Spirit, it's as if he stamps a seal on our hearts that says, this person is an authentic citizen of heaven. They're mine. And that leads to the very close relationship with the third, and that is ownership. When the Holy Spirit seals believers, he marks us as God's own possession, as belonging to him in a very special way. That's why when we read in Romans 8, beginning at verse 15, he says, you've not received the spirit of slavery, right, leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, what? That we are children of God. We now belong to him in this family that he has created what is called the church, the body of Christ. And so if we're to sum it up in just a sentence, we might say that God's sealing by the Holy Spirit is his electing love, okay? His, his choosing of us from before the foundation of the world, his beautiful relationship with Christ, in order to confirm to our souls that his love is eternal. And we can never fall from it. So once again, Paul wants to, even in he talks about the ceiling, he's talking about the permanence and the depth and the profundity of God's love for us. And it is that certainty of God's love pressed home on the heart, so much so that the believer knows that they are a believer because they cry, Abba, Father, there's a new intimacy with God that they never had before. That itself becomes, Paul says, is given as a pledge. That is the guarantee. That is the down payment. Because that's precisely what a pledge is. It is a down payment. In fact, the word was so much used in that sense that it was a word that became used as engagement ring. You gave an engagement ring. It was your pledge. It was a guarantee. I am going to marry you. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to us as God's wonderful gift and pledge, he is saying to his church, to his bride, you are married, you are betrothed to me, and nothing will keep you from me. I will have you as my spotless bride on the day that I have set from eternity for that to take place. And so out of the security of our relationship with Christ comes this great promise, this great guarantee that we will one day taste the fullness of its beauty. Well, next Paul moves talk about the goal. And the goal actually should not catch us by surprise because he's really talked about it a lot in this section because he basically says that the goal of our inheritance is not primarily to give us some great wonderful present. It is to bring him glory. But Paul begins that. He backs up a little bit first and he says, I want to remind you of something. He says, you're not your own. You're God's possession. He says, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. 
all creation belongs to God. Every bit of it. But it's all fallen. And yet God has chosen to redeem it. And he has chosen to redeem particular individuals for his own glory. And that is precisely where Paul moves. He says, he's not doing it for your sake. He's doing it for his own. He's doing it that his reputation might increase to the praise of his glory. So he saved us, not just to praise him. He saved us, not just to be restored, but so that when he does restore us, we will take up and fulfill the original role and purpose for which we were created, which was to rule as vice-regents in the universe and bring him greater glory in the process. In the mid-1950s, British minister W.E. Sangster uh, suddenly began to have physical problems. He began first by uh, noticing uh, an uneasiness in his throat and that his, uh, his leg began to drag a little bit. And after several visits to the doctor, he found that he had an incurable disease and that eventually uh, all of his muscles were going to atrophy to the point where he wouldn't be able to walk, wouldn't even be able to swallow. And uh, so Sangster uh, threw himself into uh, his work as, uh, with uh, British foreign missions and home missions uh, ever more uh, dutifully. And he wrote and he prayed and he uh, set out prayer cells through, uh, throughout England. And uh, gradually, however, his legs uh, became useless and his voice uh, failed completely. And uh, then uh, uh, one Easter morning, uh, just a, a few weeks before he died, he woke and uh, he was writing to his daughter and uh, he wrote these words he says it's terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice to shout he is risen but it would still be more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout see that is precisely the point that Paul has been making since verse 3 he has been shouting the praise of God in verse 3, in verse 6, in verse 12, and again here in verse 14. And what he wants us to do is to celebrate who we are and what God has done in Jesus Christ for us by making us in Christ and by granting us all these precious and great promises which one day will find their fulfillment to the praise of of his glory. So there is, I think, no more fitting conclusion to this section uh, that so often praises God than for us to do the same. So take your hymnals. And if you open them to page 841, you will find Psalm 150 written there. Page 841. Psalm 150, and I'd ask if you would stand and let's read this together in unison with a loud voice communicating as best we can praise to our God. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. 
Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. You might as well remain standing as we conclude our service with singing.